scripture reading this morning will be taken from Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Acts 7, 54 through 60. I'll be reading from the NIV. <clears throat> the stoning of Stephen. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. First off, let me address some false doctrine that was presented in our communion remarks because Ben said that he might sit here and, and, and think, oh, this individual speaking is taking away from 30 minutes for me to preach. Ben, when was the last time either one of us preached for just 30 minutes? I mean, come on. But I appreciate your remarks today. I just thought that was funny. Because we both know that 30 minutes is unattainable for us. With that being said, I want to tell you about a little girl who uh, was having a rough day with her mother. They just weren't getting along, and she was just disobeying constantly. And, so, and no, this is not Micah, for the record. And, and she is just constantly getting in trouble. And finally, her mother says, go sit in the corner and don't move until I tell you to. And that little girl went over, plopped down in the corner, and then she spoke up and said, Mom, my body might be sitting in the corner, but inside, I'm standing up. <laughs> and you've known some people like that, right? Some people who on the inside are doing the exact opposite of what they're doing on the outside. And you know what? That little story reminds me of a simple biblical truth that we have a tendency to forget. And that truth is that it's what's on the inside that really counts. Jesus indicated this in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. He said, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And, and Jesus went on in that chapter to talk about the importance of what comes from within, out of the heart of a man. And this biblical concept is important to the section of Acts that we're going to study today. You've already noticed with our scripture reading that we're looking at the stoning of Stephen. And what I want to do before I, I connect the dots here to what we're going to talk about, I want to give you a brief overview of Stephen's brief life. Because as many of you know, Stephen's ministry was short-lived because he became the church's first martyr. From Acts chapter 6 verse 8 to Acts chapter 7 verse 60, 
the focus of the text is on this one individual. You have 68 verses to tell of one man's life. And here's how it unfolded. Stephen was one of those seven guys that we talked about last week who was chosen to oversee the distribution of food to widows there in Jerusalem. He was one of seven men chosen. That's how his story actually begins. And apparently, Stephen's ministry eventually brought him into conflict with a particular synagogue there in Jerusalem. Now, you may recall that in Jerusalem you have the temple, which was the primary place of worship, but you also had synagogues. It's been said that there were something like 400 synagogues in Jerusalem at this time. And these synagogues were places of of studying uh, Torah. These were places where you would go and receive education, where you would assemble with fellow believers, and you would, would study the law and you would read the law, and you would pray, and all of those activities. The synagogue came into existence during the Babylonian captivity. And so there's this particular synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen. It was actually a synagogue that was uh, uh, attended by individuals who had once been enslaved in Rome. And they had obtained their freedom in some fashion. That's how it received its name. And you'll notice that attendees of that synagogue are from regions outside of Jerusalem. Some of them are from Cyrene, which was in North Africa. Some of them from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Some of them from uh, Cilicia and from Asia, both parts of modern-day Turkey, which constituted the uh, province of Asia Minor. These guys were from outside of Jerusalem, which makes them Hellenistic Jews. We kind of talked about that some last week. A Hellenistic Jew is is a Jewish person who was raised, uh, maybe even born, outside of the uh, Israel proper. And so they, they, they spoke Greek. They didn't speak Aramaic like a Hebraic Jew. They had some cultural differences about them. It's likely that Stephen was a member of this synagogue before he became a Christian. And it may be that he's gone back to this synagogue to teach his former peers. It's also interesting considering the places that are listed as uh, members of this synagogue. One of those is Cilicia. There's a capital city in that province called Tarsus. And there's a guy from Tarsus who figures prominently in the story, late in the story, and then from there on throughout the book of Acts. And his name was Saul. He would eventually become called Paul. And it's quite possible, though not definite and though not necessarily uh, inferred in the text, but it's possible that Stephen is there, and so is Saul. And Saul might be one of the ones who's contending and disputing with Stephen. We don't know. But Stephen's ministry brings him into conflict with this particular synagogue. And members of this synagogue start disputing with him, start debating him theologically. But none of them can withstand his wisdom. None of them can stand up to his wisdom. None of them are as wise as he is. And so because they can't outwit him, they can't outsmart him, they can't outdebate him, they have to find a different way to silence him. So they pay some guys to bear false witness against him. 
It's very reminiscent of Jesus' own story. Because they're going to accuse Stephen of blasphemy. Blasphemy in particular against Moses and against God. Blasphemy is particularly means, it means to speak against, to, to be critical of in some fashion, or to demean in some fashion. And in this case, the reference to Moses is really a reference to his law. That's the accusation born against Stephen. And it's such a serious accusation that he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the, what I have compared to the Jewish Supreme Court of the day. Because their authority at this time was only in the religion of the Jewish people. They were the judge for any matter that had to do with breaking the law. They would bring a ruling down on whether or not an individual broke the law, and then they would announce a punishment if deemed guilty. That's where Stephen finds himself for the bulk of chapter 7, defending himself against charges of blasphemy. And if you look at chapter 7, or you look at the events leading up to his speech in chapter 7, I should say, a new accusation arises. It says that he never ceases to speak words against this holy place, which was a reference to the temple, the seat of the Sanhedrin's power. And he also never ceased to speak words against the law, which was the object of the Sanhedrin's protection. And the bulk of Acts 7 is Stephen's defense. In it, he dispels these accusations of blasphemy. He, he reveres God in his speech, referring to him as the God of glory. He proclaims his knowledge and appreciation of Moses' career. He even presents a brief but accurate retelling of how the tabernacle-slash-temple structure came into existence. He's defending himself by showing that he's not blaspheming against any of these things. But he concluded this speech by calling the Sanhedrin specifically and the Jewish people in general calling them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. He then told them that they always resist the Holy Spirit, they betrayed and murdered the righteous one, and they received the law but did not keep it. And these accusatory statements, though absolutely true, were totally offensive to a people who prided themselves on their closeness to God and their obedience to the law. As a result, they were enraged, we're told, in chapter 7, verse 54. Enraged at Stephen. And then Stephen had the audacity to declare in verse 56 that he could see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That was just too much for their ears to hear. That was blasphemy because no man could look upon God. And so they took him outside the city and they stoned him. That's the gist of what happened to Stephen. 
He was a devoted disciple who did mighty things for the kingdom, but because he boldly and unapologetically declared an uncomfortable truth, he was killed. Much could be said about Stephen's boldness, but we've already addressed that in this series. Much could be said about persecution, but we've also already addressed that. So what can we glean from a study of Stephen's brief life today? That's why I started by talking about what's on the inside. You see, it's what's on the inside that really counts. And the more I study Stephen's story, the more I realize it's less about what Stephen does and more about who Stephen was. And that shouldn't be overlooked. Because who you are on the inside will have a direct impact on what you do on the outside. And so Stephen is a literary example of, what, of what's on the inside counting. And today I want to note three attributes of Stephen that make him a hero despite the brevity of his story. And I want to start with this. When you look at the life of Stephen, Stephen was spirit led. Now let me explain what I mean by that. You may notice three times in the course of Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, we're told that Stephen was full of the Spirit. The first instance, you actually have to go back to Acts chapter 6 verses 1 through 7, when he was chosen as one of the seven men to serve tables. There were some specific qualifications of the men who would be chosen. Verse 3 tells us that those qualifications included men who were full of the Spirit. The fact that Stephen gets chosen means that he was recognized as someone full of the Spirit. And then in chapter 6 and verse 5, Stephen gets highlighted as one of the men chosen. And of those seven men chosen, he's one of, one of the few that has a description added on to his name. And that description tells us that he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. A second time in two verses, there is mention made of him being full of the Spirit. And then if you get to the end of his story, towards the end of chapter 7, it's verse 55, shortly before he is martyred, he is once again described as full of the Holy Spirit. That's three times in this man's short life, that reference is made to him being full of the Spirit. There's not that many individuals in Scripture who are given that recognition, who are said to be full of the Spirit. So we need to take notice of this fact. What does that mean? What does it mean to be full of the Spirit? As one commentator said, to be filled with the Spirit means that one's life is directed by God's Spirit. In other words, it means that Stephen's not in control. Stephen's not calling the shots. Stephen's not sitting in the captain's chair or the pilot's seat. It means that Stephen is walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and keeping in step with the Spirit, to use the words of Paul throughout Galatians chapter 5. And here's the thing about being full of the Spirit. It is the ultimate sign of spiritual maturity. We try to measure spiritual maturity by human standards. So we measure maturity by attendance. Or we measure spiritual maturity 
by Bible knowledge, or we measure spiritual maturity by hours of service or even by contribution amount. We measure spiritual maturity by physical standards. That doesn't make sense, does it? But the Bible is clear that spiritual maturity is not measured by such things. Spiritual maturity is measured by fruit. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 17 through 20? Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And then in verse 20, he says, Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And you can go over to Galatians chapter 5, which I've already referenced. You can look specifically at verse 22 and 23, and you can discover the kind of fruit a healthy tree will produce. The kind of fruit maturity, spiritual maturity, will produce. And most of you know that's what's called the fruit of the Spirit. And it consists of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the mark of true spiritual health. Those fruits. And because that's the mark of true spiritual health, it's the mark of spiritual maturity. When you are producing those fruits, not just some of those fruits, but those fruits collectively, then you have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and you are set to inherit the kingdom of God, according to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. Isn't that the ultimate goal of spiritual maturation? Isn't that the ultimate identifier of spiritual maturation? To be able to say no to your passions and your desires and your kingdom interests in order to say yes to everything about God's will and God's kingdom and God's interests. You see, when we look at the life of Stephen, we got to note this fact that he's identified as being full of the Spirit. And when you start reading about that terminology, you can't help but take yourself to Galatians chapter 5 and see that you're supposed to be walking with the Spirit. You're supposed to be led by the Spirit. You're supposed to be keeping in step with the Spirit. And the evidence of those things is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So here's the question. Are you bearing fruit? Is it evident in your life? Is it visible? Or are you picking and choosing what fruit you want to bear? Could you be identified right now as someone full of the Spirit? If not, why not? It has nothing to do with what you do and everything to do with who you are from the inside out. Stephen was spirit-led, but that's not the only thing worth noting about Stephen. I want you to also notice that Stephen was kingdom-focused. And when I say that, what I'm talking about is he was a worker. He was so focused on the kingdom of God that he was one of its greatest workers. Now, what makes me say that? Because we only have 68 verses of his life. 
But I want you to consider this. When you go back to the start of Acts chapter 6, his first assignment that you read about is serving tables. He's, as I've mentioned, one of those seven guys chosen to distribute food. He's got a very specific task. He's got a very specific job. He's got a very specific work to do. But then you get to Acts chapter 6 and verse 8. And Stephen's not serving tables in verse 8. He's doing great wonders and signs among the people. And by verses 9 and 10, he's speaking and teaching in such a convincing way that those who rose up and disputed with him could not withstand or could not resist or could not stand up against him. In fact, Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7 is the longest speech in the entire book of Acts. And that's saying something considering the fact that the most prominent figure in the second half of the book of Acts is Paul, who preached till midnight. So I'm pointing out that Stephen didn't just serve tables. He was gifted with the ability to perform miracles. A gift that you can read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that came by way of the Spirit. A gift that does not exist today. Yes, he had that ability. But he was also a prominent teacher, a prominent preacher, a prominent communicator of God's Word. Such that no one could stand up to him, to his wisdom. And here's why I think it's worth pointing out that Stephen worked miracles and taught. I think it shows that Stephen didn't limit his contribution to the kingdom of God. What I mean is he didn't say, you know, I've been tasked with serving tables. That's my contribution. That's my assignment. That's my duty. That's the work I've been called to do. And so, I'm not going to do anything else. I'm going to let other people take care of all the other work that needs to be done. I've got my job. I'll do my job, but I'm not doing anything else. He didn't put parameters on what he would and would not do. He didn't say, hey, this is as much as I'm going to give. For Stephen, the kingdom of God was too big for him to just limit what he would do. Instead, Stephen was the type of person who looked for what else he could do. And Stephen reminds me of an overlooked group in the Old Testament. In Nehemiah chapter 3, you can read about the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. And among those identified as working on that wall were a group simply referred to as the Tekoites. You can read about them in verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 3, and you can read about them again in verse 27 of Nehemiah chapter 3. According to verse 5, the Tekoites repaired a section of the wall next to Zadok, who is mentioned in the previous verse. But then in Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 27, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite, excuse me, opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Here's why that little observation is worth mentioning. 
we find out that the Tekoites repaired multiple sections of the wall. Not everyone mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 3 took up the task of repairing more than one section of the wall. But the Tekoites, they did. In other words, they didn't just complete that one section and say, hey, we're done. We did our part. The rest of you can fill in the gaps. No, they found another section of the wall that they could tackle as well. And here's why that's worth noting. The Tekoites were not residents of Jerusalem. They weren't going to benefit from this wall. They weren't going to use this wall. This wall did not matter to their protection and to their livelihood. They're from Tekoa, not in North Georgia. Tekoa, spelled T-E-K-O-A, which is about 9 to 10 miles outside of Jerusalem. Here's these guys who cared so much about God's kingdom. About God's kingdom coming back to God's city. Rebuilding God's temple and providing the protection for God's people in God's city around God's presence, that despite the fact they didn't live there, they were going to work there, and they were going to work overtime. And Stephen is carrying on their tradition. Working miracles and defending the faith were not necessarily his responsibility, but he took up those tasks because he cared about the success and the expansion of God's kingdom. That's the key. He loved God that much that he was willing to do more than was expected of him. You see, when you love someone, you don't place limits on what you're willing to do for them. It's funny, a few weeks ago, one of our families, uh, when they were leaving on a Wednesday night, one of their kids dropped a My Little Pony in the parking lot. I happened to found it, and I, I knew who it was. So I brought it inside, and I texted them and said, Hey, you dropped this My Little Pony. Um, I'll set it at the, the Welcome Center so you can pick it up. And he texted me back, and he said, Can you name it? I could not name that one specifically. But I wrote him back, and I said, Well, she's not one of the big six. It's not Applejack. It's not Pinkie Pie. It's not Rainbow Dash. It's not Twilight Sparkle. Mike is grinning right now. It's not Fluttershy. Oh no, there's one more. Here's my point. Isn't that kind of crazy that your preacher knows the My Little Ponies? Do you know why I know them? That little girl right there. See, there are some things you're willing to do just out of love. Stephen loved God so much that there wasn't anything he wasn't willing to do. He would do any work I think he embodied what Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 tells us. 
To work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, because you are serving the Lord. And God is pleased with that mentality. God is pleased with people who work, who want to work. Not because salvation is earned through works, but because your work is a manifestation of your love for Him. Many of you are familiar with 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 particularly the King James version of that. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a worker that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now when you hear that verse and you hear it from the King James version, there's just this emphasis that goes on the word study. And I'm not trying to demean that. That's the, the version of the verse that, that I have memorized. But if you look at more modern translations, like the English Standard, the New American Standard, or even the New King James, they'll say something like this. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now you're probably sitting there thinking, well, that wasn't that different. What's your point? The emphasis of the verse is on a worker who's rightly handling the word of truth. A worker. A worker. See, I think we can sometimes be misled here where we think that serious Bible students who are constantly studying, they're the ones that are pleasing to God, and I'm not saying they're not. But what I am saying is I don't think that's what the verse is emphasizing completely. I think the verse may be emphasizing that workers who rightly handle the word of truth, they're the ones who please God. It's not just the passive activity of studying the word. It's the active activity, if you can use those two words together. I don't care because I make up words anyway. It's the active activity of a worker that matters. Are you that worker? Are you one who's going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or are you going to be the one talent guy who did nothing and who's condemned as being wicked and lazy? Because that's not something you can say about Stephen. Stephen was not lazy. He found work to do. And I think that may be why shortly before he was stoned, he was given the opportunity to gaze into heaven and see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, as Acts chapter 7 and verse 55 tells us. Maybe he had been so focused on the kingdom as a worker that God wanted to demonstrate his pleasure and approval by giving this good and faithful servant a glimpse of that kingdom in heaven. Now, we're not guaranteed such a glimpse, but we are told that servants who bury their talent, that is, servants who refuse to work. They're not going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So I want you to consider today whether you're a worker, a kingdom worker, if your focus is on the kingdom like Stephen. And finally, I want you to notice that Stephen was Christ imitating. 
There are several comparisons that can be made between Stephen's story and Jesus' story. Both were put on trial before the Sanhedrin. Both were opposed by false witnesses. Both were condemned by a mob. And both were executed. But the most striking comparison for me comes with their last words. You may recall that while Jesus hung on the cross, he spoke seven times. The first of those seven statements appears in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34, where he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if you look at Stephen's last words in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, he said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Both Jesus and Stephen offered forgiveness with their dying breath. And I think this might be one of Stephen's greatest contributions to us. He showed us what it meant to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And that phrase comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, where Paul instructs us to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Must forgive. Paul indicated that God's chosen ones, that Christ's followers, that those who bear the name of Christian must forgive. Must indicates a requirement. Must indicates a command. Must indicates something you have to do, no exceptions. Do you get that? All too often we treat forgiveness like an option at a buffet of Christian qualities that we can choose from when we want to. But Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, did not present forgiveness like that. He said it's something that disciples have to do because... Christ did it to us. See, it may be that nothing is more Christ-like than forgiveness. And not only does Scripture instruct us to forgive like Jesus, but it, it, it indicates that our willingness to forgive others our willingness to forgive others affects our salvation. Do you remember the parable of the unmerciful servant? Matthew chapter 18. In particular, do you remember how Jesus described the servant who refused to forgive his fellow servant? You'll see it in verse 30 of Matthew 18. Jesus said that the servant who had been forgiven by the master and was unwilling to forgive his fellow servant was unwilling or refused to forgive. That's the real issue. Willingness. Forgiveness is a choice that hinges upon our willingness to surrender to the will of God. When you are unwilling to forgive, you are ultimately declaring that you want your will to be done. As one preacher said, you are giving evidence that you don't really want things on earth to be like they are in heaven. And such a declaration angers God. Have you ever noticed in the parable of the unmerciful servant what really angered the master? 
The master wasn't angered by the presence of debt. He wasn't angered by the, excuse me, he wasn't angered by the presence of debt, but he was angered by the absence of mercy. The thing that made the master, who seemingly represents God in that parable, the thing that made the master most angry was not the wrongs committed by his servants, but the refusal of a servant to forgive his peer. That should tell us that forgiving each other is a priority to our Lord. And as you'll recall, it's in the model prayer where Jesus said, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he followed the prayer up with commentary. Not on the give us this day our daily bread part. Not on the lead us not into temptation part, but on the forgiveness part. And he said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What we need to realize is that when it comes to forgiveness, it's not a matter of whether or not we should forgive or whether or not we can forgive, but whether or not we will forgive. Because the biggest condition of forgiveness that must be overcome is our willingness to administer it. And Stephen modeled a heart that was willing to forgive even his executioners, just like Jesus. And if he can forgive them, there shouldn't be anybody I can't forgive. See, there's not much here that we look at that Stephen does. Instead, we look at who he was. On the inside, he was led by the Spirit. On the inside, he was kingdom-focused. On the inside, he was imitating Christ. Interestingly, the name Stephen means crown of victory. It's a reference to the laurel wreaths that were placed on the heads of victors in the Olympic Games. And the same word that is used for his name appears in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, where Christ instructs the church in Smyrna to be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus said that to a church that was enduring tribulation and poverty. A church that was told to anticipate suffering and the devil's testing. And Jesus could promise them this crown of victory because they were rich where it counted, on the inside. What about you? Are you rich where it counts? What do you look like on the inside? Because as Jesus said, it's what comes from within that defiles you. This morning, as we look at the life of Stephen, I'm challenging you to take an inward look and consider whether or not you're imitating Christ. Whether or not you're kingdom-focused whether or not you're spirit-led? And if the answer is no to any of those things, then maybe you need to respond today. 
Maybe you need to become a child of God today. Confess your belief that Jesus is his risen son. Repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. Maybe you just simply need to confess that you haven't been following Christ the way you should and seek the prayers of this family to help you get back on track. Whatever your need is today, we invite you to come as we stand and sing this song.